We all love to get out on the open road, see the country, feel the wind in our hair. But if you have the same car you've been driving for years, you might not feel so great after a car breakdown, unless you have a plan through CarShield. CarShield is America's most trusted vehicle protection company, and for almost 20 years, they've helped Americans protect their out-of-warranty vehicles. From car and trucks to SUVs, a plan through CarShield can protect up to 5,000 parts and systems and save you big dollars on your engine, transmission, entertainment system, and more. It's as easy as going to carshield.com Shapiro. With plans that include unlimited miles, road trips have never been easier. Plus, you get exclusive access to CarShield's concierge service, as well as 24-7 roadside assistance and help with flat or damaged tires, lockouts, and rental car options. Call CarShield to speak with an expert here in the U.S. that can answer all your questions and get you a free quote in minutes. Don't wait another minute. Visit CarShield now before a breakdown happens and you get stuck with an expensive repair bill. Save 20% and get your free quote by going to carshield.com Shapiro now. That's carshield.com Shapiro to save 20% today. Today on the Matt Wall Show, lots of COVID quote-unquote misinformation has suddenly become information because Fauci and the media are now saying it. We'll talk about that miraculous transformation today, and I'll tell you all about my own harrowing encounter with the dreaded Omnicorn variant. But uh, Twitter has ramped up its censorship campaign against COVID heretics, even as many of their claims have been proven true. So we've got to talk about that also. Also, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says that all of her critics really just want to date her. And the left uncovers a shocking truth about Ron DeSantis. You're not going to believe this. Plus, the top female Jeopardy contestant of all time is a man. And in our daily cancellation, we'll deal with the Atlantic writer who blew up her marriage because she was bored and believes that she has discovered some deep truths about life from her experience. All of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. Now, a quick word from LifeLock. Have you ever heard of Scareware? Well, just like it sounds, it's a scam that uses scare tactics in the form of pop-up ads to get users to believe that their computer has a security problem and that the fix is to purchase and, or download you know, software, which ends up being a scam. Cybercriminals can then gain access to your computer and steal your personal information uh, at will at that point. This is just one of the ways that every day we put our information at risk on the internet. In an instant, a cybercriminal could steal what's yours, sometimes even harm your finances, your credit, your reputation, all of that. That's why it's so good that there is LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats, uh, things that you might not know about on your own, might not be able to detect, like if your social security number is for sale on the dark web. If they detect that your information has been compromised, they'll send you an alert, they'll let you know. And you also have access to a dedicated restoration specialist if you do, God forbid, become a victim. Nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can help protect what's yours with LifeLock by Norton. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com slash Walsh. That's LifeLock.com slash Walsh for 25% off. You know, the new year is a time for deep reflection, for resolution, for learning lessons and making goals for the future. At least that's what most people seem to think. Uh, it's never been very clear to me why you should wait until the arbitrary point when the calendar flips over to a new year to do all of those things. In fact, if you're waiting, that's a pretty good indication that you aren't serious. The only serious resolutions, and most resolutions are not serious at all, no matter when they're made, but the only potentially serious ones are those that are acted upon the moment that they're made. And the most serious of all are the resolutions that are not made out loud, but are just done with no festivities or fireworks. And that's the end of it. So you want to start working out? Okay, well, do some push-ups. You want to stop eating junk? Okay, put down the french fries. Start what you want to start now. Stop what you want to stop now. All things have to be done in the present anyway. If you're not willing to do them in the present moment, and in instead are waiting for the new year or for Monday or for next week or whatever, then there's no reason to think that when that future time becomes the present time, that you'll actually follow through. 
But if I were to humbly suggest a couple of resolutions that you might, we might, we all might adopt this year, resolutions that can be implemented immediately and might help restore perhaps a small amount of sanity to our society in 2022, they would be, number one, to relearn how to use and how to trust your common sense. Now, we've witnessed in our age an unprecedented assault on common sense. People have forgotten how to make sound judgments in practical matters, which is what we mean by common sense, or else they've been so battered into mental submission, so bewildered and confused that they're too afraid to listen to their own intuition. We see this at work in, in you know, the sorts of areas we talk about all the time on this show, like when it comes to gender. But it's, it's been even more pronounced with respect to the COVID panic, where early on we were forbidden from saying common sense things about the situation. But now, one by one, each of those once forbidden common sense observations or intuitions have been vindicated and slowly permitted into the discourse once it's been approved by a ranking member of the thought police. For example, many of us have been saying for years that you're probably not achieving much by putting a thin layer of cloth over your face when you go out in public. If the goal is to look silly, then mission accomplished. But if the goal is to prevent an airborne virus from infecting you, then you might be in for a rude awakening. Now, such ideas were verboten, harmful, dangerous, conspiracy-mongering until just a few days ago when the Wall Street Journal published a piece titled Why Cloth Masks Might Not Be Enough as Omicron Spreads. Hmm, who would have thought? Well, a lot of us thought, but we couldn't say it. Another example, many of us have been saying, not saying, like shouting, screaming at the top of our lungs in increasingly desperate fashion, that we are harming our children by depriving them of a normal life for fear of a virus that poses very little risk to them. This seemed like a common sense judgment and also a morally sensible judgment, but was condemned as psychotic, suicidal, reckless, until the thought police on CNN started saying it themselves. So right before Christmas, Brian Stelter had exactly this epiphany. And of course, he communicates it as though he's the first person to ever say it. Listen. In some media circles, this was the week where getting COVID became an inevitability. That there's this acceptance that everybody's going to get COVID eventually. Tens of millions of Americans already have, and everybody else is going to at some point. Is that the proper approach? Just to accept that at some point you'll be infected? which doesn't mean you'll get sick, doesn't mean you'll suffer, but at some point everyone will be infected? Is that the proper approach now? And if so, why is it still so hard to find at-home tests, especially in blue America? By the way, pro tip, if you want to find at-home tests, get somebody in red America in a red state to mail them to you, since all the stores, at least here in New York that I've seen, are sold out. And here's another question, since we're hearing about schools closing again. We collectively took action to protect the elderly in 2020. Now, shouldn't we be doing more to protect children by letting them live normal lives? Are we really going to let the kids suffer even more? Wow. How'd you think of that, Brian? Lots of people on the right applauded Stelter for that when he said it a couple weeks ago. Um, I do not applaud him. If you're wrong for two years about something as serious as this, and then suddenly you switch over to the right team, without even giving any credit to the people who arrived at that conclusion two years ahead of you and provided you all the cover to say it now, you're not going to get a pat on the back from me. Shouldn't get it from anybody. This goes doubly for Anthony Fauci, who went on MSNBC on New Year's Eve and finally admitted, and this is pretty amazing in some ways, finally admitted 
that the COVID hospitalization numbers are perhaps, perhaps not what they first appear. Listen. Many of them are hospitalized with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. And what we mean by that, if a child goes in the hospital, they automatically get tested for COVID and they get counted as a COVID hospitalized individual. When in fact, they may go in for a broken leg or appendicitis or something like that. So it's overcounting the number of children who are quote hospitalized with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. Well, this is this is this is dangerous. I mean, he just said that there are kids in the hospital potentially with broken legs who are counted as hospitalized as as COVID hospitalizations. But what he's saying is not everybody hospitalized with COVID is actually hospitalized because of COVID. Hmm. See, this again is an argument that we've been making for two years. Only we had to be very careful in making that argument because everything Tony just said there would have gotten you banned from most social media platforms. Maybe it still will. Maybe me repeating what he just said will get the show taken down from YouTube. I don't know. See, sometimes if a ranking member of the Thought Police says something, it sometimes means that everyone else is allowed to say it too. But often the exception doesn't extend beyond that one individual. So there's a lot that a guy like Tony Fauci is allowed to say, which the rest of us are not. I mean, he is the science after all. The science can say and do what it wants. Those are the rules anyway. But we shouldn't mistake the rules for the truth. Common sense has been vindicated time and time again. Remember that. The other resolution is, uh, I think, even more important. And that is to stop living in fear. I mean, it's been a bad idea to, to let fear rule your life in general. But fear over COVID is at this point especially delusional. Now, I can speak with some experience now. Like almost everybody else in America, it seems, I had my turn with Omnicorn over the break, uh, which was good because, frankly, I was starting to feel a little bit left out. And um, the illness began for me as a sort of vague feeling that uh, I was coming down with something. And then for two days, I had a mild fever and I felt pretty you know, miserable. And then the fever went away and I felt almost completely fine, save for a scratchy throat and an occasional sniffle. And, and, and that was it. Now, it's not true. It's, it's not true. Not true that Omnicorn is like the flu. In my experience, anyway, it wasn't nearly as bad as that. I've had the flu. I actually did go to the hospital for the flu a couple of years ago. And um, my experience may be anecdotal, but it's far from unusual. Omnicorn has been incredibly mild for the vast majority of people. So, so what have I learned after surviving this um, tremendous ordeal? Well, after trudging through the fires of a 100.5 degree fever and a runny nose and a headache, um, I have learned absolutely nothing that I didn't already know. I was sick. Then I got better. You know, th- that's how it works usually. Sickness exists in the world. Viruses not only exist, but there are more viruses on earth than there are stars in the sky. Many of those viruses belong to the 200-some species that could potentially infect humans. And some of them are far worse than COVID, some not as bad. There are also like 100 different kinds of cancer. And over half a million Americans die every year from one type or another. There are countless bacteria floating around out there, some of them resistant to antibiotics. Many of them haven't even been discovered yet. 
And diseases are just one sort of danger. Every time you drive a car, you're trusting and hoping that you're not going to cross paths with any of the lethally drunk or distracted drivers that happen to be out on the road at the same time as you. Maybe your gamble will work out, maybe not. Even in your house, you're under a roof that could collapse. I mean, I am right now. Or walking on a floor that could give in. There are murderers out there and serial killers and terrorists and armed robbers. And we've only considered the hazards that currently occupy the Earth alongside you. An asteroid or solar flare could make all of that irrelevant in an instant. That, that is, unless a supervolcano erupts and does the job first. So my point is, Happy New Year. If you're looking for something to be, to be afraid of this year, if you really need something, there are many more worthy options than COVID and especially Omnicorn. But the better option is to focus on something other than fear. Live your life while you can. That's the best resolution, I think, for all of us. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, here's definitely a resolution you can make in 2022. Uh, Don't waste any more time at auto parts stores. There's no reason to do that when rockauto.com has everything you need. With the ever-increasing numbers of car makes and models, it's now impossible to stock all the parts you need in a traditional chain storefront. And that's why you it might be pointless to endure the, the whole hassle of going there and you've got all the specifications and everything you need and uh, they're not going to have it. And then what they're going to do is they're going to go on their computer and order it for you and you could cut out the middleman and just do that yourself. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket, so just use that instead. Why would you choose to spend 30%, 50%, 100% more for the exact same auto parts at a chain store or the new car dealership down the street? No reason to do that. rockauto.com is available to you. RockAuto.com is a family business. They've been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com right now to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. Best of all, prices at RockAuto.com are always reliably low, and they're the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need at RockAuto.com. Go to RockAuto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car, truck, right, Walsh, in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you. So a couple of other important notes from the break. First, um, that uh, that I, I was, uh, for the first time in my life, I was given the very important and sacred duty of making the cookies for Santa. And um, I wanted to show you these because here's a, I've never baked anything in my life. And for some reason, you know, we, 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 Santa's coming, so you got to make the cookies. And, uh, and, I, and so my wife said to me, can you make the, you know, the cookies for Santa? And I did. And you can see there how those turned out. You might say that I, I put the duty in sacred duty with this effort. I mean, not literally. I didn't. I mean, I didn't. I wouldn't do that to Santa. Um, and uh, there's, and I was mocked relentlessly for these cookies by everybody in the house. We had family over. My wife kept asking how the cookies ended up this way. These are supposed to be gingerbread men, by the way. Um, so and I and I and and but it's it's not supposed to look like someone Texas chainsaw massacred a bunch of obese snowmen. But that's how it turned out. And so my wife kept saying, how did this happen? And like, I don't know. I, I had the dough and I used the uh, cookie cutter thing. And then this is what happened. But Santa did end up uh, somehow he still left presents for the kids. So and then the new year came and uh, so some people were still sick in the house. So we stayed in, though, we, of course, we would have stayed in anyway because we're boring. And um, we let the kids stay up till midnight. So this was their first time staying up till midnight on New Year's. And uh, that was a decision that I regretted by about five in the afternoon. Because it was at four o'clock when the kids said to me, Daddy, can we stay up till midnight on New Year's this time? And for some reason, I said, yeah, sure. 
And an hour later, I regretted it. So we just, we stayed up all, uh, you know, until midnight and um, kids get so excited about that. But of course, as an adult, when it gets to midnight, all you're doing is you're running the calculations of how much sleep you're going to get. Everything's a math problem and you're negotiating with your future selves. Like, well, I could do 30 more minutes here. I'll take 30 minutes off the back end. But uh, the kids were, were uh, really excited. And then, uh, and we sat, we watched the ball drop and then we, um, my wife's idea was that they're gonna let, she was going to let the kids go outside and uh, scream Happy New Year in the neighborhood. And so that's what we did at midnight. So my apologies to the to my neighbors for that one. All right. Um, we'll, we'll start with this. Last week, Dr. Robert Malone was permanently suspended from Twitter for alleged COVID misinformation. Now, he's been called an anti-vaxxer and a conspiracy theorist. Uh, even though he's a doctor, he's an immunologist, he's a virologist. He's been heavily involved in researching and developing vaccines. So he's a, he's a leading expert in the world on the subject. But they banned him because he raises questions and concerns that fall outside of the accepted narrative. And a couple days later, he appeared on Joe Rogan's show. And the whole episode, I very rarely promote other people's podcasts unless they're paying me to. Um, Joe Rogan, of course, is not. But th- this is a, an episode worth watching. The whole thing is worth It's like three hours long. Listen to the whole thing. But I want to play just a couple of clips for you and um, just a few choice uh, bits here that I think are important. So first, here is uh, Dr. Robert Malone talking about the pharmaceutical industry, especially Pfizer, and the conflicts of interest that you deal with when it comes to the pharmaceutical industry. Listen to this. Well, that's one of the more disturbing things. The the opposite of that is one of the more disturbing things about this pandemic is how people have just decided – because they're scared and because they want a solution that the pharmaceutical companies have their best interests at heart and that they're not these machines that are designed to make money. And they they sell drugs and the drugs are often beneficial, but their main goal is to make money. And if they can fudge the data, if they can move the numbers around, if they can delete negative consequences. Pfizer is one of the most criminal pharmaceutical organizations in the world based on their past legal history and fines. What do those fines include? Bribing physicians. Okay. It is a cost-benefit analysis in the pharmaceutical industry about misbehavior. They are not grounded in the ethical principles that you and I, as average people, believe in. They don't live in that world. As you appropriately point out, they are about profit, return on investment. And furthermore, the overlords that own them, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, etc., these large, massive funds that are completely decoupled from nation states, have no moral core. They have no moral purpose. Their only purpose is return on investment. So not, nothing that you just heard there is, uh, although, of course, it's condemned as conspiracy theories and there's there's nothing conspiratorial about it. There's nothing especially shocking about it, actually. Um, we, we know it's a, it's a simple fact of life. We know that money corrupts. And uh, these pharmaceutical industries are multi-billion dollar corporations. There's a lot of money at stake. And that's going to create conflicts of interest. And it seems interesting at first that, you know, on the left, I mean, if, you, if you didn't know any better and you're maybe a little bit more naive, you might expect that criticisms of the pharmaceutical industry would be, they'd be kind of a bipartisan deal, 
where people on both sides of the aisle can agree. Because we know that people on the right tend to be skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry to a certain extent. And then but people on the left, uh, it's, it's, this is a major corporation with billions of dollars. And you're supposed to be skeptical of all of them. And for good reason, by the way. And yet it seems that um, the left, this is one multi-billion dollar industry that they'll circle the wagons around. And say, oh no, not them. And that might seem interesting at first or confusing, but then you realize that, uh, you know, from the leftist point of view, big pharma, you know, these are basically the priests. These are the, the, uh, the witch doctors of the human condition because the human condition from the left's point of view is, a, is entirely a medical problem. And every problem that you have can be solved through, through medicine. You, you need big pharma for that. So any, and that's, that goes beyond viruses, any uncomfortable emotion or thought or, or a personality trait that you don't want, well, you just go to Big Pharma and they'll solve it for you. No, everything from despair to anxiety, everything can be solved through, through Big Pharma. If you don't like the biological identity that you were born with, you can go to Big Pharma and they'll solve that problem for you. So you have to understand how the left views the pharmaceutical industry. They do, they do view it in a, in, a, in a kind of religious light. And that is primarily why they cannot brook any criticism of, uh, of the pharmaceutical industry. All right, one, so a couple others here that I wanted to play for you that I think are interesting. So here is Robert Malone, this is clip three, talking about the ways that hospitals are incentivized um, when it comes to COVID. And this, 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 these are his claims. This is what he's saying as someone who has a lot of background knowledge. And uh, I think it's important for us to, all to hear it. Here's what he says. The observation that I can make if we follow the money is that hospitals are incentivized to, to treat COVID patients. The thing that ties all this little part of this story together including the suppression through the government um, of early treatment. Hospitals are incentivized financially to treat COVID patients. If COVID patients are being treated outside of the hospital and prevented from going to the hospital, such as the case in the Imperial Valley, um, where Brian Tyson and George Fareed have saved thousands and thousands of lives of indigenous Latinos that are coming across the border and working the fields. I mean, they're, they're breaking their backs to save the poor. Amazing story there with early treatments. Um, and I guess they're left alone because they're in the Imperial Valley and nobody cares. They're all poor. But in these urban environments, there is all these incentives for hospitals to treat COVID patients. And if people are giving treatments that are keeping those people out of the hospitals, then they're not getting that revenue. So your speculation, if I just could unpack this, that doctor in Maui who was giving early treatment, you, re- you think that the reason why he was targeted because he was directly costing the hospital money because people weren't going in? I'm not COVID? saying – I'm saying that the observation is that early treatment keeps people out of the hospital and that hospitals have financial incentives, including death incentives, financial To discourage incentives. early treatment. That's outrageous. I wish I hadn't played that. I'm sorry. Um, he said Latinos, which is very offensive. Latinx is what he means. But here again, we hear about the, the p- potential conflicts of interest that could arise. Um, 
And he also talks about how, according to him, he alleges that, you know, there's this, there's this intense focus on the so-called preventative, what's supposed to be preventative measures like, like vaccines. But um, what about treatment after the fact? I mean, what about, what about actual therapeutics? We don't hear as much about that. He alleges that there's been an effort to suppress that information. And there might be financial reasons for that. There could also be political reasons. I think, personally, I would guess if that's going on, a big part of it is political. Because Trump, early on, was talking about, you know, ivermectin and those sorts of things. And and as soon as Trump says it, then, well, that can't be the answer. Because Trump said it. So one other clip, this is kind of a longer one, but I think, but this, this to me of, of, of everything that was said in the whole three hour conversation, this to me, to me, this was the headline. Uh, so this is clip four. Uh, he, he's talking about a province in India where they've basically shut down. Remember Joe Biden said he's going to shut down COVID and you might notice that it has not been shut down because cases are higher than they've ever been. Well, in one province in India, they have basically shut it down. They've crushed it. But we're not being told what exactly they did, which is which is sort of interesting. Listen. Uttar Pradesh, as you know, has crushed COVID. Yeah, could you explain what they did to do that? Because it's kind of fascinating. It's it's not clear. Um, what are the drugs? So what they did do, what we do know, and there there's some backstory to this that we could go into if you want to. But the observation is there was a decision made. The virus was just ripping through Uttar Pradesh. It has almost the same population as the United States. It's huge. Okay. Um, dense, urban poor, all the characteristics of the stereotypes of the Indian countryside. Um, And uh, the virus was just ripping through there and causing all kinds of death and disease. And the decision was made out of desperation in that province to deploy early treatments as packages widely throughout the province. And it included a number of agents. The composition has not been formally disclosed. It was done in coordination with with, um, WHO and Whatever was in those packages um, was rumored to include ivermectin, um, but there was a specific visit of Biden to Modi, and um, a decision was made in the Indian government not to disclose the contents of those packages that were being deployed in Uttar Pradesh, which they're still there, and Uttar Pradesh is flatlined right now. The rest of the world is yelling about Omicron and, and, and hospitalizations. Well, South Africa isn't, but uh, Uttar Pradesh is still flatlined in terms of deaths. So they were visited by someone in the Biden administration? Is that right. No, there's a meeting between Joe Biden and, and um, Modi. And you and believe that the, out of that meeting, all they decided? I, know, I don't know what they said. I didn't, wasn't invited. All right. I know is that immediately afterwards, there was a decision not to disclose the contents of what was being deployed in Uttar Pradesh. It, it's so crazy to imagine that in the middle of a pandemic, there's one place, uh, one area of India that's extremely successful in combating the virus, and they're not going to say how they did it. I mean, that's, that's nuts. That's, I, you know, so that's, that's where I kind of, my stance in all of this is to say, here are the facts. Here are the verifiable data. Draw your own conclusion. So there you go. Um, so what do you, what do you do with with information like this? I mean, does it mean that um, you can't trust anything anyone ever says about this? Does it mean that you we just you, you abandon pharmaceuticals and ever? I'm not. I, I I am never very quick to grab a, a bottle of pills, but on, you know I take Tylenol if I have a headache every once in a while. So are you going to say, well, I'm never going to, uh, everything that big pharma does is bad. Well, that would be absurd too. 
No, I think what we do with this information, or the right response, is should be to let everything out in the open and to have these conversations openly. Let people with different perspectives, let guys like Robert Malone say his piece. And then once all the information is presented and you've got all the different sides, might be it might seem kind of bewildering, but you've got, you know, and, and now you, there's potentially at least a chance of arriving at some kind of a conclusion as an adult based on all the information. And you could decide what your own risk calculus is going to be. That would be the right thing to do, but the problem is that that's, that isn't being allowed. You know, big tech shuts it down. They say, well, this is not allowed. You're not allowed to hear. It's not because, it's not necessarily because what you're hearing there is false. It's just that from their perspective, it might lead you to the conclusions that they don't want you to, uh, to arrive at. And so that's why he got kicked off of Twitter. Um, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene was, was also kicked off of Twitter. That's the most, the most recent thing. She was kicked off of Twitter yesterday after supposedly committing whatever it is, four or five strikes. It always changes. And what are her, her violations? Well, just because she has an opinion about all of this that, um, that might sway people in a direction that our big tech overlords don't want them to be swayed. You know, another thing we have to consider here is, is we look at, like we talked to, to, to start the show about all of these sort of common sense judgments, common sense observations that many of us have been making for years. And um, we were shouted down and condemned. And now they're circling back around Brian Stelter, Fauci, the CDC. They're saying, oh, you know, maybe, maybe there might be something to some of that. Only they're not phrasing it like that because they don't want to give us credit. And what we find is that the, especially early on, many of the so-called public health experts, many of the doctors failed us. And why is that? Well, one of the reasons is aside, if, we, if, we, if we're to put aside political partisanship and everything else, and that's, of course, a big part of the, the equation. But um, one of the reasons is that we were turning to doctors to answer questions that are outside of their purview. So in an ideal scenario, in an ideal scenario, if you're talking to a doctor who you can trust, um, and he doesn't have any conflicts of interests, and he's not a political hack, what, what, he, what he might be able to tell you is that, okay, if you engage in, in this activity, um, here is the, the physical risk that might come with that. So if you go and gather with your family on Christmas. The degree of risk from COVID is going to be X, Y, Z. So doctors can do that. And, 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 and again, if you could trust them, if they're trustworthy doctors, we could call them an expert in that area of assessing that sort of physical risk as it relates to this or that uh, activity. Okay, fine. But what doctors can't tell you, once they've given you the risk, which is just an estimate anyway, right? It's a guess, but they've given you the risk. What they can't do is tell you whether the risk is worth it. Because that's not a medical judgment. That's a philosophical judgment. So pulling a number out of thin air 
gathering with your family on Christmas, if there was a, I don't know, 3% chance that you would get COVID doing that. Uh, maybe you could look at the statistics and you could figure out what the exact percentage chance is. Fine. Well, is that 3% risk worth it? Is that a worthwhile risk? Is the potential cost worth what you would gain? Well, how, who, who, who's an expert on that? that? That's something that can only be that can only be an individual judgment. Because it's your own life, your own family, and these are the things you're weighing. And it is, again, at the end of the day, uh, a, uh, a philosophical judgment. Now, I would say 100% definitely worth, worth the risk. Uh, we got together with our families. You know, in my family, we got together with family on Christmas, and uh, we all got COVID. Okay? Was it worth it? Definitely. If I could go back in time and just cancel Christmas ahead of time so that I didn't get COVID, would I do it? No. What did we gain out of it? Well, we, we got to be with our families on Christmas. You know, our, our, our children got to celebrate Christmas. You only get so many Christmases as a kid. It was a very, it's a very precious time. So was that worth the physical pain that was re- relatively mild that came after it? Yeah. For me, for our family, but that's a judgment you have to make on your own. And so this is the conf- this is the conflation that's been going on for years now, where the where we're supposed to turn to doctors not just to to tell us the you know the, the data and the numbers and all of that and the percentages, but also to 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 give us these philosophical judgments of whether or not this or that risk is worth it. You know, and that's really a question of what, what sorts of things should you value the most in your life? Should you value physical safety above everything else? I would say the answer to that is definitely no. Uh, and I'm not sure why doctors would have any special insight into that. All right, let's move to this. Uh, from the Daily Wire, it says, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez lashed out at critics on Friday after she was caught hanging out in Miami, Florida, as her city deals with a record-breaking number of daily coronavirus cases. National Review reported that, according to photographs obtained by the publication, Ocasio-Cortez was seated outside in uh, Miami Beach, and uh, she was drinking a cocktail. She didn't have a mask on. And she responded to one of her critics calling her out, saying, if Republicans are mad, they can't date me. They can just say that instead of projecting their sexual frustrations onto my boyfriend's feet. I guess because someone made a comment about the fact that her boyfriend has ugly feet, which it seems like he does. Um, Then she said, you creepy weirdos. And she continued, it's starting to get old, ignoring the very obvious, strange and deranged sexual frustrations that underpin the Republican fixation on me, women and LGBT plus people in general. These people clearly need therapy. They won't do it. And they use politics as their outlet instead. It's really weird. And this actually prompted, this is a a whole uh, day-long meltdown on AOC's part where she was uh, insisting that everyone who criticizes her is actually sexually attracted to her. And this this stems from two things. Number one, she is a, uh, a very, very stupid person. And I certainly don't say that about everybody on the left. I think there are plenty of Smart people on the left, evil, you know, evil, but but intelligent, um, in the Democrat Party as well. 
unfortunately. But that's not the case for her. She's, she's very, very stupid, and she's not able to engage intellectually with any point that anybody makes. And so she retreats to the common thing, which is to just label. If you can't engage with an argument, then you simply you label it. And usually we're going to, oh, it's homophobic, it's transphobic, it's sexist. And in this case also, it's, it's, it's an expression of your deep-seated sexual frustrations. And there's a lot of projection that goes into that as well. Now, people on the left, they see, they see sexual frustration everywhere they go in the, that, that is supposedly driving the behavior of everyone around them. But all we can assume based on that is that, that, that is, that's their own experience. That's how they operate. And so they assume that everyone else operates the same way. So there's that. There's, there's projection. There's stupidity. And there's also simply narcissism. You know, she, she assumes, again, that everyone is sexually attracted to her. And so anytime anyone talks to her or says anything about her, it, it, it must be fueled by that. Narcissistic, shallow, and uh, and that's what you get from AOC. All right, so this is big news. I think this is even bigger news. I need to show you this. Um, a right-wing watchdog group, that is a watchdog group that, that watches the right wing. They've uncovered something quite sinister related to uh, Ron DeSantis. So this is, put up 10A. Okay, so this is the Twitter account Patriot Takes. And uh, they tweeted out, Ron DeSantis' family is wearing the exact same clothes in both their Christmas and New Year Instagram posts. This is, this is stunning. This is a stunning, I, I think there's going to be a Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize for this. This is maybe the great, perhaps the greatest political scandal, certainly of the 21st century. That Ron DeSantis' family, they're wearing the same clothing. In, in What's going on here exactly? And you, you click on that tweet and you read all the comments underneath it. And it's a bunch of people asking that, what's going on? What's, what's, what is, what's happening? What does this all mean? Wearing the same clothing in two different, well, I, I just have a one theory here, if I, if I could. It could be that there's something really sinister happening. I don't know. Or it could be that Ron DeSantis got his family together for a photo shoot. And I can guarantee you it wasn't his idea. It was his wife's idea. It's never the man's idea. So I should say, Ron DeSantis' wife got the family together for a photo shoot, forced them all there, and then what, what they did was they took multiple photos. And now his social media team is putting those photos up at various different times. Because what I can tell you from experience, again, is that um, this is one of the reasons why, as a man, it'll, it'll never be your decision to take any kind of photo shoot. Because it's, it's, it's not, when I talk about cost-benefit analysis, never worth the cost. Because first, you got to get all those kids in the nice clothing, and that's a whole ordeal. And you've got to, the clothing has to stay nice, at least the part that's visible for the camera has to stay nice long enough for the pictures to be taken. And that's usually feasible with, so he's got two girls there. That's Okay, you can put them in nice clothing and uh, let them walk around the house a little bit, and they'll be fine. But with a boy, you put him in nice clothing, and within five minutes, it's, it looks like he was rolling around in a barn. So you do all that, you keep them clean, you, you, you get them into an environment, you got the, the photographer there, and to actually get them to look at a camera and smile 
If you can, if you can get them in that the, the mood where they're actually going to do that, where you're going to take full advantage and take as many pictures as you can, especially if your wife is forcing you. So I think that probably explains how this happened. If anyone is is wondering, all right, uh, this is from. I guess two weeks ago, is was, was, uh, r- right after our, our last show here before Christmas Eve, but I did want to mention it because we followed this case of uh, Kim Potter, who is the officer in the Dante, Dante Wright shooting. She was uh, on trial for manslaughter, uh, for accidentally shooting Dante Wright while trying to arrest him after a traffic stop because he was wanted on, uh, on a warrant for, uh, for uh, on an illegal weapons warrant, which stems from an armed robbery case. And uh, anyway, the, the verdict came down and she was found guilty of manslaughter. Now she's awaiting sentencing. And here's Minnesota, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, after the verdict was read, talking about Dante Wright. And uh, he's happy about the verdict, of course, but he's, he's still very sad because of, of the kind of man that Dante Wright could have turned out to be. And, and we are now going to be deprived of Dante Wright because of Kim Potter. Here's Keith Ellison. At this moment... I ask us all to reflect upon the life of Dante Wright and who he could have been had he had a chance to grow up. At 20, Dante could have done anything. Maybe he could have gone into the building trades. Maybe he could have started a business. What we know is that he was a young, new dad, and he was so proud of his son, Dante Jr. We know that he loved his mom, and he loved his dad, and he loved his siblings, and his big, beautiful family. He had his whole life in front of him, and he could have become anyone. All of us miss out on who Dante could have been. Oh, we're, we're missing out. That's, that's pretty terrible. We're, we're missing out on who Dante could have been. Well, I don't think we need to speculate very much. Because even though he was only, what was it? I think he said 20 years old. So a grown man, but a young man. And in that short amount of time, he had uh, robbed a woman at gunpoint while choking her and sexually assaulting her. He had shot a kid in the face at a gas station, crippling him for life. And he was implicated in at least one, in a carjacking, I believe. And those are just the ones we know about. And, and that's, that's what he did in his very young life. And that was all in the span of like a year or two, a couple of years. So we don't need to speculate. Uh, what, what sort of man would he have been? Who could he turn? Well, that, that's, that's it. And the thing is, generally speaking, when there are no consequences for your actions, or at least no consequences that are proportional to uh, what you're doing, most of the time, you're not going to magically convert into a better person. I mean, it can happen. The Lord works in mysterious ways. But usually that requires a con- some sort of confrontation. You have to hold people accountable. And we have a justice system that does not hold people like Dante Wright accountable. That's how he was still walking around af- out there after shooting somebody in the face. And Keith Ellison says we're, de- we're deprived now. It's communities. No. The, the sad reality is that Dante Wright's community, is, it's safer now because Dante Wright is not in it. His community is better off now that he's not in it. That's not my own judgment. That's just a fact. 
He was a dangerous man who preyed upon the vulnerable, the weak, people weaker than him. So that's that's it. That that's what's going on with the community now that Dante Wright isn't there. We got a couple other quick things. We got to move on. Um, a lot of news that we missed. Uh, Betty White died at the age of ninety nine. Earlier in the week, John Madden died at eighty five. So that was that was last week. And I bring this up because we, we got to think about Betty White died at ninety nine. John Madden died at eighty five. Uh, the same year, that was all before New Year's. And the same year, Alex Trebek died. Norm Macdonald died. And those were four of the only universally beloved figures left in America. And I know that not all of them were American, but we adopted them. Alex Trebek, we adopted. Um, so who's left then? I think that leaves us maybe Dolly Parton and like Denzel Washington, and that's it. And I would have put Keanu Reeves on that list, but I think he's off it now because of Matrix 4. So that's it. That's, that's all we've got. And there, there does something seem to be something significant about this that we don't produce in our culture anymore universally beloved cultural icons that everybody admires. There are a few that were left because they were grandfathered in. I mean, Betty White, 99 years old. But I don't think there are any new ones. So once Dolly Parton and uh, Denzel Washington depart their mortal coil, that's, I, think that, I think that's it. And finally, from the Daily Wire, it says a Planned Parenthood in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, burned down early Friday morning. According to the Knoxville News Sentinel, fire crews were called about 6.40 a.m. as heavy smoke was coming out of the back of the structure. There were no injuries reported. Um, The building was being renovated, and uh, the clinic was not being used at the time, but now it's burned down. We we don't know exactly how it happened or what started the fire. And, uh, you know, it's, it's it's a real shame. But look on the bright side. The building was really just a clump of bricks when you think about it. So this was the termination of an unwanted clump of bricks. Was it even a building? How do you define building? I mean, what is a building exactly? And anyway, as our BLM friends would say, it was insured. So, you know, no harm, no foul, right? That's the bright side of this. Let's get out of the comment section. Okay, so it's been a while since we've done a show, so I figured um, instead of going to the YouTube comments, I would go to my DMs and read some of those instead because those are more recent. And so that's what we're going to do. This is from Internal Saintoku. It says, hey, Matt, just wanted to wish you good luck with coming up with more stupid in 2022. You've done such a good job this year, and I'm sure you're only getting started. You'll make so many people that much dumber with your nearly unintelligible rambling. Best luck, bud. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I do. Sequence says, I come from a pretty broken home and just wanted to know, is it normal for every couple to have an argument every once in a while? Since you have a good marriage, I would love to know from yourself. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's, in fact, we'll, we'll have more on this in the daily cancellation come up here in a second. But uh, it's not only normal, but it's healthy. I, mean, I, I hear from couples sometimes that say, oh, we never argue. I never argue with my, my spouse. Um, that just tells me that one or both of you, probably one of you and probably the husband, that you're, you're keeping your mouth shut. And you're not expressing your anger when you, when you feel it or when you're uncomfortable with something, you're not saying it. So if there's any kind of actual communication in your marriage, there's going to be arguments. Uh, if you're having uh, arguments every single day, then that's different. But this is, this, 
in moderation, all things in moderation, especially arguments. Um, Dancing Beck says, can you, can you explain what should I exist means in your panda sweatshirt? My husband bought it for my son for Christmas, but neither one of us know what it means. Well, I appreciate that you had no idea what it meant. You bought it anyway. Um, am I going to explain it? No. You should know that by now if you listen to this show. We don't explain anything. Lots of very, as the last DM said, lots of unintelligible things come out of this show. We don't explain it. We just move on. All right, going back to the DM says, Ryan uh, Ryan says, hey, Matt, was really sorry to hear that you got COVID and didn't die. Wishing better luck on the next virus. And then another comment says, damn, you ugly. I'm, I'm starting to regret the whole idea of going to the DMs. I think um, this was not the best decision to start the new year. But thank you so much for those comments. We're going to go back to the YouTube comments after this. You know, the phrase do not comply has taken on an entirely new meaning for the Daily Wire this week. This Friday, the Supreme Court will convene to hear arguments on the legal legality, legality and constitutionality of the mandate. And that means this week is going to be pivotal in our fight against the Biden administration's authoritarian vaccine mandate. We have over now one million signatures on our do not comply petition currently, but it's vital that the number increases before Friday. When you sign the petition at dailywire.com slash do not comply, you help us send a message that the American people will not comply. Again, head to dailywire.com slash do not comply right now and sign the petition. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. So for our cancellation today, we move from New Year's resolutions to something even worse, the dreaded New Year's reflection. And worst of all, the kinds of reflections inflicted upon us by middle-aged divorced writers, which are not really reflections, but more rationalizations of their horrendous lifestyle choices. So last week, there were two pieces published in this genre, one in The Atlantic by a woman ironically named Honor Jones, titled How I Demolished My Life, then another in The New York Times by Heather um, Haverleski, titled Marriage Requires Amnesia. So we'll start briefly with Heather, Heather who's, uh, who's at least still married, though perhaps not for long. And here she is reflecting on her marriage. And in her reflections, she's decided that the healthiest and wisest course of action is to vomit out all of her most bitter and unseemly thoughts about her husband and publish them for all the world to read. So here are a few choice morsels of the vomit. Disgusting. Um, she says, when encountering my husband, Bill, in our shared habitat, I sometimes experience him as a tangled hill of dirty laundry. Who left this here, I ask myself. And then the laundry gets up to fetch itself a cup of coffee. This is not an illusion, it's clarity. Until Bill has enough coffee, he lies in a jumble on the couch, listening to the coffee maker, waiting for it to usher him from the land of the undead. He's exactly the same as a heap of laundry, smelly, inert, almost sentient, but not quite. This is why surviving a marriage requires turning down the volume on your spouse so you can barely hear what they're saying. You must do this not only so you don't overdose on the same stultifying words and phrases within the first year, but also so your spouse's various grunts and sneezes and snorts and throat clearings don't serve as a magic flute that causes you to wander out the front door and into the wilderness, never to return. And then after complaining for a while about the sound that her husband makes when he sneezes, because this is the kind of stuff that gets published in the New York Times, by the way. I mean, she, she literally spends paragraphs talking about what he sounds like when he sneezes. Heather then drops this. She says, do I hate my husband? Oh, for sure. Yes, definitely. I don't know anyone who's been married for more than seven years who flinches at this concept. A spouse is a blessing and a curse wrapped into one. How could it be otherwise? How is hatred not the natural outcome of sleeping so close to another human for years? Unless you plug a propofol drip into your arm every single night, 
How do you encounter those unwelcome grunts and gravelly snores as anything but oppressive? Unless you spend most of your waking hours daydreaming, how do you tolerate this meddling presence? Rearranging stuff, but never actually putting it away. Opening bills, but never actually paying them. Shedding his tissues and his dirty socks all over your otherwise pristine habitat. Well, Heather, hello, my name is Matt. Uh, Now we've met, and you can say that you've met at least one married person who doesn't hate his spouse. And you could probably walk outside of your house and quite easily find many more like me. Maybe you haven't left your house in a long time. Maybe that's part of your problem. I don't know. But what I can say is that hating your spouse is not normal or okay. Anger is one thing, like we just talked about. Of course, you're going to get ticked off at your spouse sometimes. That's just an emotion. But to love is to will the good of the other. That means to hate is to will the bad of the other. It's to want bad things to happen to somebody and to actively work to make those bad things happen. This sort of thing has no place in a marriage. I mean, that belongs on a battlefield or, you know, on Twitter, not in your home, not between you and the person you've vowed your life to, especially when you consider why you hate your spouse. You know, your hatred is wrapped up in a product of your self-involvement, your narcissism, your ego, your fantasies, your self-deceptions. So let's take just one line, which I thought was pretty revealing. Um, When you said, you know, you, you hate him because he sheds his tissues and his dirty socks all over your otherwise pristine habitat. Now, even if this were true, the fact that you hate somebody for inconveniencing you only shows that the problem again is you. But also, what about the messes you make? Who's to say that your habitat would be pristine if not for him? And who says that it's your habitat to begin with? See, the way you see it, you own everything. It's all yours. This is your life, your home, your marriage, not his. And you're perfect. And so anything not perfect that happens is a direct assault and affront to you. The problem, again, is you. And probably him, too, to some extent. But the only person you can directly fix is yourself. And you haven't even begun to consider that option yet. Which is why your marriage eventually will fail. Unless you figure out how to confront your own weaknesses. But this is all downright wholesome and healthy compared to the other piece, the one in the Atlantic titled How I Demolished My Life. The writer, Honor Jones, describes how she rather dishonorably divorced her husband for no reason other than that she was bored. She says that she was bored in her house and bored of her husband. And that's what led to, led to this revelation. She says, I didn't have a secret life, but I had a secret dream, which might have been worse. I loved my husband. It's not that I didn't. But I felt that he was standing between me and the world, between me and myself. Everything I experienced, relationships, reality, my understanding of my own identity and desires, were filtered through him before I could access them. The worst part was that it wasn't remotely his fault. This is probably exactly what I asked him to do when we were 21 and first in love, even if I never said it out loud. To shelter me from the elements, to be caring and broad-shouldered. But now it was like I was always on my tiptoes, trying to see around him. I couldn't see, but I could imagine. I started imagining other lives, other homes. I wanted to be thinking about art and sex and politics and the patriarchy. How much of my life, I mean the architecture of my life, but also its essence, my soul, my mind, had I built around my husband? What could I be if I wasn't his wife? Maybe I would microdose. Maybe I would have sex with women. Maybe I would write a book. God, I hope not. Now, these are great ambitions, you see. These are her, these are her great ambitions. The great summits she, she, she wants to climb now that she's free. To have sex with women and uh, microdose. Then she, she describes how she told her husband that she was leaving him for no reason. And she also throws in that she has kids too, by the way. They're an afterthought, of course. 
their well-being is of no concern to her whatsoever. Then she says this. There were days when the magnitude of what I've done bore down on me. I kept wondering if I'd feel regret or remorse. It's hard to admit this. It makes me cold. As cold a woman as my ex-husband sometimes suspects I am. But I didn't. I felt raw and I liked it. There was nothing between me and the world. It was as if I'd been wearing sunglasses and then taken them off and suddenly everything looked different. Not better or worse, just clearer, harsher. Cold wind on my face. I had caused so much upheaval, so much suffering, and for what? He asked me that at first, again and again. For what? So I could put my face in the wind. So I could see the sun's glare. But I didn't say that out loud. Well, it's good you didn't say that out loud. I can't imagine being the husband in that scenario. And my wife has just told me that she's ruining my life and our kids' lives and destroying everything we've built. And I ask why, and she says, oh, to put my face in the wind and see the sun's glare. Uh, what? That doesn't mean anything. It literally doesn't mean anything. And, and I could read more of this piece to you, but it's all like that. None of it means anything. Because it's all just a supremely shallow, self-absorbed, narcissistic woman trying to find poetic language to obscure the fact that she tore her family apart because she was bored. She's like a sadistic child pulling the legs off of a spider for fun. Except in this case, she's pulling her family apart, ripping it limb from limb. And feeling quite entertained by the spectacle, apparently. Or at least numb to it, as she confesses. Worst of all, she thinks this makes her interesting. But it doesn't. You see, shallow, selfish people who can't keep their promises are a dime a dozen. There's nothing fascinating or provocative about the concept. Tolstoy famously begins Anna Karenina, which is his novel about the 19th century Russian version of you know, this woman, Honor Jones. With this line, he says, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. But I think that's exactly backwards. Because most unhappy failing marriages and the unhappy divorced people they produce are the same. They're usually just a bunch of childish, you know, selfish people at the center of it. The same story repeated a billion times. But intact, successful marriages and families are much more dynamic and unique and interesting. Maybe somebody should write a New York Times or Atlantic article about one of those sometimes. But for now, to start the new year, both of those publications who printed those pieces and the women who were responsible who wrote them are, of course, canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vladowski. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our show, Morning Wire, where we bring you all the news that you need to know in 15 minutes or less. Join me and my co-host, Georgia Howe, for daily coverage of all the biggest stories on Morning Wire. Morning Wire. 